Thanks, Pastor James. Good morning and happy Mother's Day to all our mothers. One more time, let's honor our mothers and our grandmothers. Whether you are here in the house or watching, happy Mother's Day to you. My name is Greg, one of the pastors here. And I want to give a special Mother's Day message this morning. Uh, but it is a message for everybody, everybody listening, you, whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, this is a word of God, I believe, will challenge and encourage all of us, okay? But before we get into the, the message, um, I want to make a special announcement, and I asked Pastor James to allow me to share this one, uh, but I'm very excited because we are going to have a marriage conference coming up on May 20th and 21st here at the church. That's a Friday and Sunday coming up in two weeks. I'm excited because Pastor Corey is going to come and he's going to uh, share with us his wisdom about marriage and a couple messages you'll also hear from a special panel. Um, I'm telling you now, though, because you need to register now, okay? The registration actually closes this week, um, and the reason it's closing is because we're having a very special catered lunch for that event. It's not just a little box bento. It's going to be a, a freshly cooked warm meal. Rustic Romance is the theme, a very special guest chef, Chef Nick Miro, who I really enjoy whenever he caters events. And so I had to have him here for this marriage conference. So he's going to do And so $25 gets you the entire conference, including that lunch. You can't even buy lunch for $25 for two people these days. And so you're getting that and the conference, a bunch of wisdom that will last you for life, okay? So uh, $25, that's whether you're a single or a unit, $25. Also, childcare will be available for that um, for a small cost um, so that we can have enough volunteers for that. So if you need help registering and signing up, we'll have a table in the lobby right in the center. There's going to be a table where we'll help you register. If not, you can just go online or go to the app and sign up today. Okay, do that right now. It's okay to do, do it during my message. I'll let you do it during my message, okay? But with that... Um, I want to share with you, so some of you guys know that 41 of us just got back from the Holy Land, from Israel. So here's our team of 41 people. Uh, 39 of us came back. Two of them are still there. Rob and Denise, I know you're watching. Shout out to you guys. Uh, I just got a text right before I came up that they finally uh, tested, both of them tested negative this morning. And so we praise God that they'll be able to come back on a plane very soon. So let's praise God that... Uh, he got them through that period of time. Their attitude has been so great. But 41 of us came back from the Holy Land. And the most common question I've been getting all week since we've come back is, what was your favorite part? What was the highlight? And they'll ask me, was it the fact that you got to see nothing in the tomb? Was it when you walked through the garden where Jesus prayed, the Garden of Gethsemane? Was it seeing the place where Christ was crucified? What was your highlight? What was your most memorable moment? And interestingly, my most memorable moment was when we got to sit in a synagogue in the town of Nazareth. And that's the place where Jesus comes from. And here's a picture of that very synagogue we sat in. And in the synagogue, you kind of sit around, and we were told by our guide what would happen in the synagogue as you come on the Sabbath day, somebody would stand up to come, and he would come to the podium, and he would unroll the scrolls and read from the Torah, the Old Testament scriptures to us, but it was just Jewish scriptures to them. And we were told to imagine that Sabbath day in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus stands and he unrolls the scrolls and he starts reading. 
And it says this in Luke 4.16. Jesus came to Nazareth. That's where we were. That's where he had been brought up. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And so this is something that Jesus had, had been doing on a regular basis. Nothing new here. It's just reading from the scrolls. But on that particular day, Jesus shocks the crowd. See, he unrolls the scroll, and it says in verse 17, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And here's what Isaiah says. This is a messianic prophecy. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That right there was written hundreds and hundreds of years before that day from Isaiah prophesying the coming Messiah, the Savior of the Jews. And Jesus, it says, rolls it back up, and then he goes and he sits down. And if you read the rest of the story, you know that by the end of the story, something happens inside of these Jews in the synagogue that make them so mad and so angry that they want to take him and throw him off of the cliff there in Nazareth. As, in, as I'm sitting here and we're hearing the story read, I'm sitting in the synagogue, putting myself in the setting. It's like, boom, lights are coming on. And connections are being made. Why was this so powerful for me? Because I was just at that cliff that they tried to throw him off of. Here's a picture of me and Monica, my wife. We're, we're here at this cliff, Mount Precipice, where they believe is the brow of the hill of that town where they tried to chuck him off of. We didn't realize it when we took this picture that we were standing right there. But here is a profile of Mount Precipice. This is the cliff that they were trying to throw Jesus off of. And I'm asking myself, why so mad? Why are you guys so angry that you should throw an innocent man off of a cliff that would surely kill him? Why so mad? Hold on to that question because at the end I'm going to come back to this question and try to answer it. And I'm willing to bet, I'm, I'm guessing that what you think is the reason might not be the reason. But for now, I want to give a Mother's Day message. And so let's turn to Matthew chapter 1. <laughs> Matthew chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. This is a Mother's Day message for everybody listening. And before we do that, I want to stop and pray. And let's ask the Lord to teach, all right? Let's pray. Father God, first of all, thank you so much for the great news from Rob and Denise that they get to get on a plane soon and come home. Can't wait to see them face to face. But thank you for your faithfulness. And reminding us of your goodness. Thank you for their heart to trust the Lord. And we do that this morning. Thank you for all the mothers, God. For many days, this, for many people, this is a glad day. We celebrate our moms. And yet for many of us, some of us, it's a sad day. Because we miss mom. And some of us, it's, it's a mad day. Because I, I don't like mom. But God, whatever the condition of our heart is, I pray that by the end of this time, our hearts would all be filled with joy. That you would, you would remind us of the blessings you poured upon us. 
And if there's anything that's been made wrong, we pray that you would show us you're a redeemer who makes wrong things right. So speak to us now. We give you our hearts and our minds. Teach us from your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to call this message the four mothers of Jesus. The four mothers of Jesus. And I want to show you the family tree, the genealogy that Matthew gives us of Jesus. And it goes like this. I'm going to just read five verses today. And it goes in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham, the father of Isaac, and Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. So it sounds like a typical genealogy, right? Nothing crazy, nothing exciting there. But here's where it gets interesting. Check this out. Verse 3 goes on. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. Circle or highlight that name Tamar. And Perez and the father, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Highlight that name, Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Highlight that name, Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David, King David, was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Highlight that name, the wife of Uriah. I want to stop right there. Now, if you read the genealogies in the Old Testament, and even if you read Luke's genealogy in his gospel, you're going to notice something. That women just are not mentioned in genealogies. Why? Well, usually it's this man is the father of this man, and this man was the father of this man who was the father of this man. They just did not mention women in general. And yet four women are, are listed, four mothers are given to us in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Why mention these women? And if you're, if you're going to include women in your genealogy, Matthew, why not list people like Rebecca and Sarah and Rachel, like wives of the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Why not mention them? Why these four random women? Well, maybe because it's not so random. And maybe because Matthew is trying to tell a story. Maybe he's trying to paint a picture of not only where the Messiah has come from, but who the Messiah has come for. He's showing us who the Redeemer has come from, but more importantly, who he has come to redeem. And so who are these four mothers? Why are they included? It would do us well to take a look at each. So let's go back to verse 3. It says, And Judah, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. So let's talk about Tamar. If you're writing notes, let's talk about Tamar. Who's Tamar? Well, we read about Tamar's story in Genesis 38. And I wish I could tell you this is a good story. It's a great story with a great ending. But it's just not. It's not. To be honest, it's so messed up. It's a messed up story. Here's the story. So Judah, who's the grandson of Abraham, has three sons. 
I know it's a little confusing, so I'm going to put it up for you to make it clear. So Judah has three sons. The first is Ur, the second is Onan, and the third is Shelah. And Tamar is married to the oldest son, Ur. But the Bible says Ur is evil in the sight of the Lord, so Ur dies. And according to the custom, the next son in line, it's his responsibility to bear children with that older brother's wife, the widow, so that they can give birth to kids and that guy's family line can continue. So it's up to Onan now, but Onan sleeps with her, has sexual relations with her, but he prevents her from getting pregnant. Why? Because he's selfishly thinking, I, I want to have this pleasure of sleeping with her, but if it's not even going to be my kid and he's going to belong to my brother, then I don't want to give her kids. So he prevents her, and because the Bible says he does evil on the side of the Lord, Onan dies. And so we go down the line. Now it's up to Shelah to now bear kids with Tamar. Now imagine you're Judah. You just lost two sons to this woman. And so he's like, I don't know if I want to give my last and only son. So Judah prevents Shelah from getting with Tamar. Now Tamar this whole time is grieving because I I want to have kids. I want to have kids. So Tamar does something crazy. She disguises herself and she, she veils herself and pretends to be a prostitute a temple prostitute, and she seduces her father-in-law, Judah, to come and sleep with her. He gives in, and she gets pregnant with her father-in-law's child. I'm telling you, this story is so messed up. And so she ends up giving birth, burying the father-in-law's kid. She has twins inside of her, and their names are Perez and Zerah. Their mother was Tamar. And so what's the moral of the story? There is no moral to the story. It's amoral. There's no moral to it. In fact, it's very immoral. It's a story of lust. It's a story of deception. It's a story of greed. It's a story of prostitution. It's a story arguably of incest. It is such a messed up story. And I wish there was a good ending, but Genesis 38 just ends there, and then it goes on to 39 to tell another story. So that's what I'm going to do right now. We're just going to go on, and I'm going to tell you another story. <laughs> Let's talk about Rahab. Rahab, in verse 5, the genealogy continues. It says, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Some of you, got, you snobs are saying, uh, isn't it pronounced salmon? No, it's not. How do I know? Because he's not a fish. He's Hebrew. Okay, so it's salmon. And salmon, right? Like in the Bible, people address people by, what, by how they identify them, right? So you got Elijah, the prophet. You got Joseph, the carpenter. You got Simon, the zealot. You got Jesus Christ. How many people know that Christ is not his last name, right? Christ means Messiah. So we're saying Jesus the Messiah. So we call people by how we identify them. How many know how people like to identify Rahab? Rahab the harlot. Rahab the prostitute, right? So she's known as the town prostitute. How does that make her feel every time she's addressed? When I was young... So my brother right here, Daniel, you guys might know he loves martial arts, right? 
Well, guess who loved martial arts first? That was me. I loved it ever since I was in elementary and junior high. And the fact is, when I was in elementary and junior high, I was a really pudgy and really chubby kid. And every time we would have family get-togethers, one of our uncles, he, he knew that I loved martial arts. He also knew I was very pudgy and chubby. And so he came up with a name for me. He called me the Fat Ninja. <laughs> <laughs> that was his name for me. And so every time we would get together, he'd be like, hey, it's the Fat Ninja. And everybody would be like, ha, 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 ha. And I'd be like, ha, ha. <laughs> like, like I'd want to throw a ninja star at him, right? Like, like. But every time he said that, it, 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 it killed me inside. I hated being called that. It's hard for me to believe that Rahab would love to be known as Rahab the prostitute. And yet, that was her identity. And not only was she a prostitute, she was a Canaanite. Now, Canaanites are the despised enemies of Israel. They're hated enemies but for some reason, Rahab, the Canaanite, puts her faith in the God of Israel. See, the Israelites, Joshua, the commander of the Israelites, sends spies into Jericho to spy the land. He wants to conquer the place. And so Rahab hides these spies in her house for exchange, in exchange for her life. She says, I'll spare your life if you spare mine when you attack. And because she was a, a harlot, a prostitute, it was probably a common scene to see guys come in and out of her house. So she leveraged that. She used her past for God's purpose. And so when the king sends people to come and say, where are those spies? Where are those spies? She says, I don't know. They've left. They've gone that way. And when the coast was clear, she then lets these two Israelite spies out of her window so that they can return safely to the community of Israel. She had always been known by her past, but she has found faith, a prostitute and a Canaanite, a natural-born enemy of Israel who by faith feared the God of Israel. So verse 5 goes on. It says, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. So let's talk about Ruth. We don't talk about Bruno. No, no, no. We talk about Ruth. Let's talk about Ruth. That's so dumb. All right. The Canaanites were not the only enemies of Israel. There were also the Moabites. The Moabites, if you read through the Bible, were infamously ungodly and immoral people. Has anyone ever heard of Sodom and Gomorrah? Sodom and Gomorrah, that story where God rains down fire and brimstone and judgment because of their immorality because of their wickedness and Lot and his two daughters are able to run away and escape the judgment and they're thinking that they're escaping the immorality of Sodom and Gomorrah but they hide in the cave and they find themselves right in the middle of immorality I'm telling you this story is so messed up so Lot's with his two daughters and each of his daughters take advantage of their father they get him drunk and they each take turns sleeping with their father. And each of them gets pregnant. Not with their father-in-law, with their father. It's a sick story. One has a son named Ammon. And the other, a son named Moab. And these two sons, born in evil, grow up to become powerful nations who are evil. 
the Moabites were one of them. And it was also that story in the story of Balaam and Balak where the, the Moabite women are the ones who lure the Israelite men into sexual relations to get them to sin. And it brings calamity upon the Israelite community. Those are the Moabites. Do you know who is a Moabite? Ruth. Ruth is a Moabite, and yet there's an entire book in the Old Testament that tells a story, a beautiful story, of how this Moabite woman is brought into the family of Israel by a man named Boaz. And Boaz and, and, and Ruth get married, and they have a son named Obed. And we go on in the genealogy, and in verse 5 and 6, it says, Obed is the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of David the king. So Ruth, among the hated Gentile Moabites, becomes, by God's grace, the great-grandmother of one of the most important figures in all of Jewish history, King David. That's Ruth. Then we go on in verse 6. King David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Does anybody know who the wife of Uriah is? Bathsheba. So let's talk about Bathsheba. Let's talk about Bathsheba. This is interesting because Matthew could have simply kept it clean and said David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba. He could have just saved some space and said that. But why does he write it like this? Instead, Matthew tries to make it a point to remind the people who this woman is who has a kid with King David. Who's this woman? The wife of another dude. The wife of Uriah. Like Matthew's trying to highlight that there was a scandalous affair, an adulterous affair. And if you know the story of David and Bathsheba, it's not just that one sin, but that leads to a whole, whole snowball, an avalanche of sins. Because that adulterous affair led to lying, royal cover-up, an abuse of power, drunkenness, betrayal, murder. The story is so messed up. It's just a really messed up story. And yet somehow Bathsheba makes the list. She gets written into the family tree of Jesus. She makes it into Messiah's genealogy. So we got four women listed as mothers in the lineage of our Messiah. Three of the four Gentiles. Here's a summary. Three of the four, gen, uh, three of the four women are Gentiles, despised, considered unclean by the Israelites. Three of the four women are caught in adulterous, scandalous, evil sin. They're marked by scandalous sin. Their stories are so messed up. So why not just leave them out of the genealogy, Matthew? Why not just keep Jesus' family tree pure? Why do you have to mention them? And I'll say it again because Matthew wants to show who the Redeemer has come from. And more importantly, to show who the Redeemer has come to redeem. Who has he come to redeem? Let me give you two people he's come to redeem. Number one, here's what he's come to redeem. If you're taking notes, he came to redeem people of all sin. If you're taking notes, write this down. He came to redeem people of all sin. And I, I believe that somebody needs to hear this right now. 
whether you're here in this place or watching today or maybe you're watching two weeks from now, somebody needs to hear this. Maybe it's a mother. Maybe it's a father. Maybe it's an athlete. Maybe it's an addict. Maybe it's a coach. Maybe it's a college student. Maybe, maybe you're an employer. Maybe you're an employee. But somebody needs to hear this truth right here, that no matter what you've done in your life, there is no sin that cannot be redeemed. There is no sin, as long as you bring it before the Lord, that cannot be redeemed. Maybe you've been divorced. Maybe twice. Maybe three times. Maybe you're living in the pain and remorse of a child that's been aborted. Maybe you're living in regret because you brought a child into the world, but you look at the ways you failed as a parent. And you wish you could go back. Maybe you've made some decisions in your workplace that has led to sinful decisions in other areas of your life. Maybe you've cheated on your spouse and you can't bear to tell another soul. And yet in your heart of hearts, you know that God knows. I praise God that the mothers in Jesus' genealogy Remind us and show us that there is no sin that he cannot redeem. That there is no story so messed up that he can't redeem. See, to forgive sin is to pardon sin. We praise God that he forgives sin. But to redeem is to make beautiful that which is broken because of our sin. We praise God that our Redeemer lives. Amen? Our Redeemer lives. And our Redeemer is able to create beauty from ashes. He's able to take broken and shattered pieces and turn them into masterpieces. He's able to make masterpieces out of shattered pieces. That's our God. Our Redeemer lives. Tamar pretended to be a prostitute. She gets her father-in-law pregnant. She gets him to sleep with her, yet somehow God redeems her story, and he grafts her into the lineage of our Messiah. He uses her and her offspring to eventually bring forth King David, one of the most important figures in all of Israel. And from King David, offspring that would eventually bring forth King Jesus, the most important figure in all of history. And God used Tamar. In that story, Rahab didn't pretend to be a prostitute like Tamar. Rahab was actually a prostitute. She couldn't get away from that identity. That was how people saw her. That's her identity. Yet by faith, God gives her a new identity. And by Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament, we're given a hall of faith, heroes of the faith. You got Abraham, you got Isaac, you got Jacob, you got Moses, then Rahab, who found faith in the God of Israel. She's one that we're told to look up to. If God could redeem Rahab's story, if she could... If she could be redeemed from her messed up story, then I know Jesus could redeem yours too. I know he could redeem yours too. With Bathsheba, there was so much brokenness that came out of that adulterous affair. Her husband gets killed because of that. 
the child she brings forth into the world within the first week dies. How much could a young lady bear? How, how do you lose a husband and lose a child? There's brokenness there. And let's be fair. Like, what if that wasn't even her choice? Like, all we know is that she was minding her own business, bathing in the privacy of her own residence, and King David, the king, summons her. If you're living in the kingdom under King David, how does anybody say no? You can't say no to the king. And she's called upon, and she has no choice to make. And some of us were experiencing brokenness from sin that didn't originate in you. That's not fair. That's messed up. Some of you are experiencing brokenness because of what someone else has done to you. That's messed up. And yet Bathsheba reminds us that the Messiah is not just a forgiver. He's a redeemer. God reminds us that he can turn the story around. God continues to bless Bathsheba, gives her a new child, and they call him Solomon. Solomon comes from the Hebrew word shalom. It means peace, completeness, wholeness. They give him a second name. They name him Jedidiah, which means loved by God. And I pray that every single person here who is broken and shattered, that, that you experience a peace and a completeness because you know that you are loved by God. And if God can redeem Bathsheba's messed up story, I know he can redeem yours too. God uses Bathsheba in the beautiful legacy of his own son, the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Redeemer of our sins. I don't know who needs to hear this, but there is no sin that cannot be redeemed. There is no brokenness that cannot be transformed into beauty by the hands of our master. Amen? So he has come to redeem people of all sin. Number two, he came to redeem people of all nations. He came to redeem people of all nations. See, Tamar, Ruth, and Rahab give us incredible reason to worship our Messiah right now. I want to bring you back to that synagogue, that scene that I opened up with as I was sitting there in the synagogue, there in the very town Jesus came from in Nazareth. Remember that story where Jesus stands up on Sabbath day and he rolls open the scroll of Isaiah and he reads this messianic prophecy. And as he reads it, people are so furious that they want to throw him over the cliff. They're in Nazareth. I saw that cliff. I was there. That he, he would have surely died. And so my question was, why so mad? Like, why are you so angry with him? And some argue it's because of this. Because it says after he read the scroll, he closes it. It says Jesus sat down. And it says all the eyes were gazed on him. And tradition tells us, some people believe, that the seat that Jesus sat down in is known as the Messiah's seat. And tradition is that in, in some synagogues, there's a seat that's left vacant at all times. No one sits there because that's reserved for the, when the Messiah touches down on earth. That's his seat. And Jesus rolls this, this scroll, this messianic prophecy, and takes a seat. Now, I have to tell you, I have to be honest, that's speculation. 
The Bible doesn't say that, so that's speculation. But I also want to say this. Even if that was a normal seat that Jesus sat in, there was nothing normal about what he said. Even if it was a normal seat where Jesus sat, there was nothing normal about what Jesus said. Because what does he say as he's sitting down? It says in verse 21, he began to say to to them, today, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Imagine I come up here on a Sunday morning and I start preaching to you, which It's not hard to imagine. That's what I'm doing right now. I've been doing this for years. You've seen me do this. Some of you, you've seen me do this for 10 years here at SBCC. But what if this morning I come and I open up the Bible and say, hey, guys, I just want to tell you this morning. I am Jesus. I am your Messiah. I am your Savior. I am your King. How many of you would love to help throw me off a cliff right now? Like, right? Like, you're crazy. You've preached for 10 years. You've never said anything that outrageous. You've completely lost your mind. You're getting the straitjacket because you're just crazy. Jesus has grown up in this town. They've seen him. They've seen him stand here and read it before. And yet on that day, this hometown boy who's grown up in this city... And these scriptures that our people have been hanging on to for hundreds of years, waiting for our Savior, he says, today it is being fulfilled in your presence. In other words, what's he saying? He's saying, I am your Savior. I am your Messiah. Now, is that why they wanted to throw him off the cliff? I argue no. That's only part of it. I believe it's what he goes on to say next. Because if you read Luke chapter 4, Jesus responds to him. He says, yeah, 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 yeah. You're not going to believe me because no prophet is honored in his own hometown. And then he gives two examples. He says, for example, Elijah the prophet. In the time of Elijah the prophet, there's a whole community of widows in Israel. Yet who does Elijah the prophet go to minister to? He goes beyond the community of Israel to this Gentile Named Zarephath from Sidon. And then he says this, after Elijah the prophet, there's Elisha the prophet. And during his time, there's a bunch, there's a whole community of lepers in in Israel. And yet, who does Elisha minister to? Jesus says he goes beyond the community of Israel to this Gentile named Naaman from the land of Syria. These prophets went beyond Israel to these Gentiles from Sidon and Syria. And it says, if Jesus were saying, and so shall this Jewish Messiah. Like the Jews have been waiting hundreds and hundreds of years for a Jewish Savior to save them from the Gentiles. Now you're claiming to be the Messiah to go to the Gentiles and save them? You're crazy. And so that's why it says in the next verse, in verse 28 29, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they can throw him down the cliff. They wanted to kill the guy. 
that moment for me as I'm sitting here in the synagogue there in Nazareth, lights are going on. Connections are being made. I'm connecting all these dots. Oh, my gosh, I was just at that cliff. And that moment was probably the most meaningful moment for me in all of our time in Israel. And I pray that for everybody listening right now that this is a deeply meaningful moment for you as well. See, because what Jesus was saying, the message he was giving, is the same message that Matthew gives us in the Messiah's genealogy. That the Savior of the world has come to redeem not just the people of the Jews, but to the Jews and from the Jews to the ends of the earth. That he has come to save Jew and Gentile. I think about that. This past Monday, when we came back from Israel, we left at 7 a.m. Jerusalem time, traveled, traveled, traveled. We arrived at my home about 8 a.m., 9 a.m. Jerusalem time. It took us about 25 to 26 hours to get home. I realized we are literally on the other side of the globe, literally. Like we are... At the ends of the earth from where Jesus walked. And Jesus came to go beyond Jerusalem, beyond Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. It's crazy for me to think that this Cantonese guy in Torrance, California, has been chased down by the hound of heaven. That he has pursued me. And he has captured my heart in Torrance, California. That's crazy. It's crazy. I think about our team in Israel, the 41 people. And I took a survey. I asked, where do you come from? What's your origin? And just in this picture right here, we have people from Hong Kong, from Taiwan, from Lithuania, from Toisan, from Japan, from Peru, from China, from Italy, from France, from the Philippines, from Mexico, from Greece, from Africa, from Canton, from Korea, from Portugal, and even the foreign land of Hawaii. (laughs) All in this picture right here, we went to this church that was built on the place where they believed the Lord taught the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven. And all throughout this church are, are the, the Lord's Prayer written in over 140 languages. We saw the Lord's Prayer in Chaldean and in Cherokee. We saw in Didamari and Korani. We saw in Javanese and in Japanese. We even saw in the spiritual tongue of pigeon. Can you believe that? Pigeon is an actual language. And yet all these tongues confess our Father who art in heaven. Every holy site we went to, everywhere, you're hearing languages. We're seeing people from Spain, from Brazil, from the Philippines. I'm going to another site. I hear languages from Eastern Europe. I'm hearing different dialects from Africa, languages I've never even heard before. And it blows me away that all these people from all over the globe, from different tribes, different tongues, different nations, different lands, have all been touched by the Messiah. That they should all journey and make this pilgrimage to walk where Jesus walked. To walk in his footsteps. 
that they should follow after him. And as I think about what we experienced in Israel, all the different peoples, it gives me a beautiful picture of what the future Holy Land will look like. John gives us a vision that he gets of the end times. In Revelation chapter 7, it says this in verse 9 and 10. He says, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, palm branches in their hands, and crying out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Hallelujah. We are so different. People of different cultures are so different. I saw that firsthand. You know what we all share in common? I don't care what land you're from. We're all living in a pandemic of sin. There is no land in which it has not affected. There is no boundaries to brokenness. We're all broken by sin. And what Tamar the Canaanite and Ruth the Moabite and Rahab from Jericho show us in the genealogy of Jesus is that we have a God who so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave us his son Jesus to redeem people of all nations from all Sin. Amen? Amen. You know, when people have something that's broken and shattered, and they have pieces, a lot of times people just want to throw it away into the trash bucket because it's, it's worthless and it's useless. And so they, they see that there, there's no good to come from it. And yet the Japanese have developed this art form called kintsugi. And kintsugi is they would take these broken and shattered pieces, and instead of seeing it as worthless and useless, they'll take lacquer made with gold powder, and they would take those shattered pieces and turn it into a beautiful piece of art. And it said that this piece of art is now more valuable. Its beauty shines even brighter than it was in its original condition, unbroken. It's more valuable and more beautiful because it has a story. Because of its history, it's been redeemed. It's been redeemed. We have a Messiah who has reached down into the rubbish. He has reached to the ends of the earth to redeem people of all nations from all their sin. I want to say to you right now, if you ever feel broken, if you ever feel shattered, if you ever feel alienated, if you ever feel isolated, if you ever feel unloved, remember the genealogy. Remember the genealogy. Remember the genealogy that Jesus reaches into the rubble to redeem people of all nations and all sin. To God be glory. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much 
that as we sit here and we reflect upon the mothers in the genealogy of Jesus, these, these four seemingly random women, we see that they're not random at all. That you are the author who writes the most beautiful story. You are the redeemer who takes beauty from ashes and you create masterpieces out of shattered pieces. God, that's you. And I thank you that every one of us listening right now, we have a story. We have messed up stories. We've sinned. We're broken. But Lord, we ask right now that you would show us that the story's not over yet. That you're still writing. You're the author and perfecter of a faith that gives us new identity, that gives us a new life, and shows us that we have an amazing, gracious, loving forgiving beautiful Savior so thank you Lord we want to worship you now though we are broken vessels broken and shattered we sing of your amazing grace as it's in Jesus name we pray amen